Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. Today, I join you from the road. I'm getting ready right now to speak at a client event in beautiful Biloxi, Mississippi. The sun is shining, the wind is blowing, the waves are breaking, and I am so thrilled, so excited to be introducing you to today's very special Live Inspired podcast episode. Let me start by sharing a date. April 20th, 1999. On that day, two boys entered into their school. They then murdered 12 of their fellow students and one of their teachers before taking their own lives. This is what we now refer to as the Columbine shooting. The ripple effect from that day devastated families who lost children, who lost siblings and friends, the dozens who were physically impacted in the rampage, and innumerable lives that have been impacted in what they witnessed, in what they suffered, or what they lost. With yet another recent mass shooting in a school, I wanted to discuss what could lead someone to take this violent path, so that we might learn how to decrease the likelihood of it ever happening again, and ultimately, how we can begin to heal when tragedies do in fact enter our lives. I've invited someone to join me in this discussion who really understands more than most the tragic realities of mass shootings, of loss, and of working through it to make sense somehow of it. My friends, today we have the honor, and I really do believe that it is a massive honor, of visiting with someone whose grief and anguish remain ever-present almost 20 years after the Columbine shooting. On today's Live Inspired podcast, we visit with Sue Klebold, She is the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the two Columbine shooters. This is going to be enlightening. It will be emotional. It's going to be surprisingly warm and an incredibly personal story. I think what will amaze you most is how much you can relate to Sue and to her family and the concrete ideas she offers to help make sure that none of us have to step into her shoes. You are going to hear Sue's heart. You're going to hear it break. And you are going to hear her struggles, her courage, and her ability to overcome. Most importantly, you're going to hear what motivates her every day. And here it is. To remind the rest of us of the reality that unless you ask the right questions and create the right space, you don't really know what is going on in the lives of those you most love. It's an important lesson, so grab a pen. You won't want to miss Sue's tips on questions to ask and how to create that sacred space for your family and for your community. My friends, I ask that regardless of where you sit in regards to your political views, that right now you open wide your heart, your mind, and your life to my new friend whose voice we need to hear today. Sue, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. So Sue, let's just dive in and you know, April 20th, 1999 is certainly a day that forever changed your life and the lives of, of all of us impacted by the Columbine shooting. What, 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 what was the turning point? When did you realize that something was going on that day? 
Well, that morning, um, I woke up as usual to go to work. I had to get downtown to a job. It was it was still dark out, and I got up very early. Dylan uh, had to get up early as well because he had a 6.30 in the morning bowling class. Mm-hmm. And uh, that particular morning, I was up getting ready in the dark as usual, and I heard him bounding down the stairs quickly. And I was confused because normally I had to get him up and sort of make sure that he was dragged out of bed. And that morning I could hear him uh, running past my bedroom door mm-hmm. and going out the front door. And uh, I opened the door into the darkness. I couldn't see him. He hadn't turned on any lights. And I yelled his name. I said, Dill. And all I heard was, bye. And then he went out the front door and slammed the door behind him. And I was alarmed and I was puzzled, but at that point, Columbine had never happened. I was not thinking this is a life-and-death scenario. What I thought was something is bothering my son, something is bothering him. And I turned to my husband and I said, did you hear the way Dylan said goodbye just now? And he hadn't heard it. Um, And I said, I think uh, something may be bothering him. Will you be here Uh, when he comes home from school so you can talk to him and figure out what's wrong. And he said, and my husband worked out of our home, Mm -hmm. he said, yes, I I will do that. And then I went off to work thinking that whatever it was, my husband would talk to him, as he always did, and things would be fine. And uh, it was just something that I I didn't even uh, hold on to in my mind. It was something that I assumed by the time I got home, they would be resolved and everything would be resolved. Well, you you fairly quickly realize that your assumption was off. The phone rang, from what I understand, at around noon. You're at work. You weren't able to answer it. Take us forward from that point. Yes, I was away from my desk getting ready to go uh, for a meeting at, a, at one of the community colleges. And while I was away, um, someone had apparently left a message because the message light on my phone was flashing. And before I left for the meeting, I checked my messages and I heard my husband's voice, and he sounded horrible. He was gasping. Um, his voice was ragged. And uh, he said, uh, Susan, this is an emergency. Call me back immediately. And I just felt pins and needles all over my body because I could tell from the tone of his voice that something had happened to one of our children because nothing in the world would make him sound like that other than having one of our children uh, being in danger or being harmed, and I called him back, and um, I said, what's happening? And all he said was, listen to the television. He, he put the phone up, apparently, against the TV where I couldn't hear anything. I just heard static and sound, yes. and I was yelling into the phone, what's happening? What's, you know, come back, what's happening? And then at this point, I'm thinking, well, if it's on television, maybe we're at war. Maybe mm-hmm. we're under some kind of a nuclear attack. I was all over the place trying to figure out what this meant. And then he came back on the phone and just poured out, there's a shooting at the school, and they think it's gunmen are shooting at people, and someone said they have trench coats, and Dylan and his friend own trench coats. I knew that. And, uh, and he said, nobody knows where Dylan and Eric are. All of their friends are accounted for. And he just was gushing all this information. And I just said, uh, I, I said, I'm coming home right now. And I hung up the phone. 
and began a long drive home. When you're making that drive, Sue, you know, there, there are a million thoughts going through your mind. Would, yes. would you share with us what you were thinking or hoping or praying or uh, what, what's, what's going through your mind during that long commute? At that point, I was, I was fighting back uh, to sheer terror and panic. I was trying to drive. I did not have a radio on because I wanted to use all my faculties to, to just to drive the 26 miles I had to to get home. And, you know, what's playing in my head is every possible scenario. You know, at first, Dylan and his friend Eric had been arrested the previous year for stealing something, and they had been in a diversion program together. And the only time in his life he'd ever been in serious trouble was when it had been with Eric 14 months earlier. So part of that was alerting me to the fact that maybe, maybe something had happened. Maybe the two of them really had done something wrong. But I was also thinking maybe this is a prank because Dylan had mentioned to me that there was going to be a senior prank. And I remember saying to him, you know, you, you just got out of a diversion program. This mm-hmm. you know, can't be a prank. You could end up with a felony on your record. Then I thought, well, maybe Dylan's been, been shot. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's lying somewhere. And, you know, it, I, I went through, you know, if he, is he really part of something or was this some kind of a, a, a stunt or a theater project gone awry and, and people are wrong? It was just this racing trying to understand, just this early uh, processing to try to understand what could possibly be happening, what could his involvement be, and just wondering if he was safe every minute. When did the details begin coming in on what is happening and who is responsible for it? After I got home, um, my husband had already contacted a lawyer because Dylan had just gotten off diversion. And we knew that, uh, that any, they told him that anything that he did, even putting shaving cream on a banister, could mean that he would be in trouble and would have this felony on his record. So we were thinking along those lines, you know, what has happened? Has there been some kind of a stunt that he's involved with? Could he be in trouble? So um, throughout the day, we, we didn't know what was happening. We, they told us that they believed Dylan was, and they didn't use the word perpetrator, because, again, it was so much happening, we weren't sure. Um, a SWAT team came to our house. We were asked to leave, go outside. We had to sit outside on the ground all day long. They wouldn't allow us to come in. Later we learned that was because they suspected there might be explosives in Mm -hmm. our home. Um, It was just a day of confusion, and I would hear through an open window on the TV that that 25 people were killed, and uh, I remember at one point just thinking, if if this could be possible, that Dylan is doing this, he, he must be stopped. And I remember praying that he would die. And I even prayed that he would kill himself so that I'd know that he wished to be dead. And um, it was just a long day of not knowing. And I kept asking the police, you know, what's happening? And I kept saying, is my son all right? Is my son all right? Where is he? And no, and no one told me anything. Yes. Now, I don't know if that's because they didn't know or because they were told not to. But late in the afternoon, one of the policemen, when I said, what has happened to my son, one of the policemen said, uh, your son is dead. And I said, how did he die? And he said, I don't know. And um, that was 
the manner in which I found out. But I still, at that point, didn't have any understanding of the magnitude of what had happened or what his role really was in it, other than we were hearing that he was one of the gunmen. And that's all that we knew. When it went from being kind of slight rumors and whispers that your son might have been one of the gunmen to being a fact that indeed he was an active shooter. He was part of this, part of the plot, part of the plan, and part of the carry out of it. (sighs) That's the little boy that you kissed goodbye toward that morning in the darkness of that hall. And he yells, you know, bye to you. That's a little guy whose hair you brushed the night before. Like, this is your baby boy. How do you even begin as a mother to reconcile your child, you know? And when we look at our kids, they're all our favorites. When you look at your baby, how do you begin to reconcile, that was my baby boy, and that is also a murderer who was my baby boy? It's a very long process. First of all, I was completely in denial. I believed that Dylan was there somehow because of something that had gone wrong. It wasn't until six months after the shootings when the police, the sheriff's department, gave their report did I really, really understand that Dylan had been there because there was planning involved and he had chosen to be there. Up until that point, those of us who loved Dylan, his close friends and his family, were all absolutely certain that he was there because of some fluke, that maybe they were planning to stage something because if they were in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they were in, you know, theater, they were, uh, they took video classes, that this was something that had gone awry. Um, I didn't think of him as a vicious murderer. When I would speak things in the paper or hear quotes, I would try to avoid those things because I was thinking in my head, everybody's got this wrong. Dylan was not capable of doing this. He was a sweet kid. He'd never been violent. And this process of accepting that your loved one has hurt other people and accepting who that is and what it means hmm. to be a mother of someone like that, it takes not only months but years. And, and literally, that's what happened. It took me six months until I really learned what his role was because I'd gone into this meeting with the sheriffs thinking he'd been brainwashed, he'd been tricked. I was so certain of that. And then I was shown really what happened and his level of involvement and his level of involvement in the planning. And I was, um, I was uh, in a, really in a state of shock. It was like starting the grief all over again, and I had to sort of rebuild who Dylan was to me. And that process of, of trying to um, restructure myself took years. That's one of the reasons it took me so long to publish the book, is that it's a, it's a long, long, hard process. Sue, when, when there's an unfortunate death, uh, reacting as a community, even if you really are family or neighbors or you love the, the, the person who died, it, it can be complicated. When it's a suicide, it's even more so. Right. I mean, it's, what are the words you say? Do you even go like how, how do you respond is sometimes the way people feel when it is a mass shooting at a school with your son? I'm just curious, how did family and neighbors and dear friends and people you hang out in the grocery store respond not just to the mass tragedy that affected the entire community, but specifically to, to your own tragedy, you losing a child? 
Well, we were very isolated after that tragedy. We had a tremendous amount, I certainly did, of um, humiliation that to think that someone that I loved and raised could do something as horrible as he did. There was a lot of fear involved. I didn't want people to know who I was. Um, where other people in the community, uh, other uh, individuals and families who had lost loved ones or who, who had injured loved ones, they were um, certainly, I wouldn't say smothered, but certainly overrun by the press and by people, people who wish them well. We were in hiding. <laughs> and so my experience was not part of the community experience. We experienced this alone. However, I will say that our family members and our friends saved us. They were the ones who put a protective layer between us and the press and angry citizens. Um, we were, everybody who knew Dylan was as dumbfounded by this as we were, as bewildered as we were. Everybody who knew Dylan felt guilty that they hadn't saved him, that they hadn't known that he was this disturbed, that they hadn't done or said something to prevent his involvement. So we all, those people who were loving friends and family members, we were all in the same boat trying to accept what Dylan had done, trying to um, sort of look out for each other, and uh, certainly over all those years, I never lost a friend. People who had known Dylan and known us rallied. I mean, I had a friend at work who took pictures of me off her wall at work because she was afraid the press was going to come in and know what I looked like and, and, and harm me or harass me. So, you know, the amount of support that we got from the people who knew us was phenomenal. I mean, friends, um, neighbors brought food and uh, for a long time, we were in isolation, and I lost contact with people. And uh, some of my friends, I saw a picture in the paper of them putting a poster on our driveway saying, we're here for you, mm. you know, call us. Um, so I had a tremendous amount of love and support privately, and uh, it was what I needed. It was the reason I never decided to change my name and leave town. Yes because I had uh, a career here, I had colleagues here, I had dear friends, and uh, I couldn't have lived without them. You had a career and colleagues and dear friends and family, that is true, and you had um, the media, our friends in the media, and a whole lot of uh, judgment from those who said, what kind of parents could raise a monster? You, you hear it all the time, but yes. when there's when there's an event like this, the finger points first, of course, to the person who does the harm. But then, if it's a younger person, immediately to the parents. That's right. What, what what kind of parent could do this, Sue? When you're hearing this, and now that you've been hearing it for 19 years almost, you've had 19 years to go back through and review your life to review. The day he was born and the diapers you changed and the night you held him and when that first fever crept in and the stories you read and the, the little boy you raised. And I think you called him your, your, your precious penny and your little yeah, daylight. Like boy, yes. this was your this was your gift. Yes. And no one ever saw this coming. So I'm curious, as you look back through your life, what do you see when you look at Dylan and, and the memories you have with him? I have always been grateful that, you know, following the initial trauma, the initial shock, after all these years, 
I remember Dylan with joy, mm. just as if he had died of cancer, just as if he died of being killed by someone else or being hit by a car. Um, I never thought I would get to that place. I thought the manner in which he died would obliterate the person he was to me. But after years and years of therapy, and um, in therapy I had the difficult task of sorting out what it was I had to work on. And um, when you have someone who harms other people and then takes their own life, there's a lot of work that we survivors have to do. Um, and, and in my case, certainly I was, uh, we were judged, we were accused. Our own governor went on the national television to say this was the parents' fault. I mean, and it, it sort of created open season on us. Um, but what I really had to let go of was the, this trauma of being hated, criticized, and judged and really focus on my heart, and my heart was I'd lost my little boy. I'd lost somebody I adored. And in, in therapy, that was the thing that um, I knew that I had to at least, I didn't know at first, thank goodness my therapist did, but <laughs> that the real work in all this is grieving. It's grieving for a loss. Yes, there's other stuff you have to work on, too. Yes, you're being sued by 36 families, and yes, your identity has changed, and, you know, all these other things that came along with it. But the real work for me was grieving the loss of my child and allowing myself to let go of all these other things as just some kind of noise and think the real work here is losing Dylan. And doing that, I, I feel that I eventually was able to come to a place of, um, of peace with his, with his loss and to come to a place where I felt that I wanted to do something with my life to honor the lives of those who had yes. died as well as my son and do what I could to try to prevent things like this from happening. Sue, so the next question I, I, I'm just thinking about is, and maybe this is unfair, but w was it harder for you to grieve the loss of your son, his life, or the loss of the son you had becoming the shooter that he was and then taking the lives of 12 students and one teacher and wounding two dozen others, you're, you're grieving almost two separate losses, right? At least. Yeah. I mean, yeah. dozens I of other losses in some regards. It's conservative to say I was grieving two separate losses. I think I felt that I was grieving uh, multiple losses. Um, you know, I was thinking of all these individuals in the community. Every time I'd go to a grocery store, I would see you know, mothers with their children, and I'd think, you know, he took that child away from that mother. <laughs> or I'd see children and, you know, siblings or children playing, and I'd think they lost their best friends, their sisters, their, you know, I was very focused on what he did to other people. Um, and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, I wanted to try to find some way to say I was sorry, and I made a statement, and we... You know, I wrote letters, and, and, but there's, there's nothing you can do no. to adequately apologize for something like that. But then, you know, along with that, there are all the other losses. You know, I, I really lost my identity of myself. I had perceived myself to be a good mother. I thought I was, and I was one of those mothers when I saw 
crimes being committed by other young people. I was one who would go, uh-huh, what, what kind of a parent was yes. that, you know? And then when I found myself on the other end of that, as someone who it, it did everything within my power to raise a kind and healthy and respectful human being, um, it was a rude awakening, and it was really kind of the beginning of a kind of enlightenment that I, you know, like, where have I been all my life that I could think such a thing about someone else? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it is a very long, long involved process. Part of what I had to, to do was I, I learned that when people were the most angry and the most critical of me, as certainly I had been in my life many times, to other people, what I realized was we are dealing with fear. We sure. are we are wanting to feel different from that person. We are wanting to say that couldn't happen to me because I am a good mother. I am a thoughtful person. I love my child. I put my child first. Therefore, my child would never do anything like that. And it's kind of a, a construct we build to make ourselves feel safer. And I, I realized that people were doing that to me. They were, they were trying to do everything they could to make me seem very different from them. You know, all the things that were myths. You know, being wealthy and negligent and all these things. People needed to believe that because the thought that you can do your yes. best and be a good parent, and still have this happen, is a terrifying thought. When you're in a grocery store, and I'm sure it has come to you before, Sue, that that you get those eyes and you know someone recognizes you. And were there these random occurrences where you would bump into, whether it's a police officer who was on the scene or a family member that lost a child or a classmate who, who knew Dylan and knew what he did, that just, that you remember, you know, word for word, even still today, 19 years later? I've had quite a few incidents of people recognizing me. Um, and I've been fortunate that most of them have been kind. Most of them have been um, surprisingly supportive and sensitive. But I, I never stop worrying about that, even almost 20 years sure. later. You know, you go to a doctor's office and there's a room full of people and they call out your name, you know, yes. Mrs. Klebold. And, I, and I, I, I cringe when that happens because I never know when I'm in a room if I'm going to be in a room with a family member of someone who had lost a child or, a, um, you know, a relative, a friend. So it does make me very, very uncomfortable, always, still. Um, I've come a long way. There was a time when I, for a while, lied about who I was, <laughs> changed my name, and I would go to a conference and, and create a phony name so I could wear it on my name tag and so people wouldn't know who I was. But um, after I published the book and I became more, my face became more recognizable, what I realized when what I encounter most is other people who love people who are suffering, people who care for people who yes. may be a threat to themselves or someone else. And they identify with me and they, they want to help. They want to help someone. And um, that's, that is nothing I ever expected to happen, but it's been something that has turned out to be a surprising gift in all of this. Well, I, I think your lessons here will, will leave a blueprint on, on maybe steps that we can take to 
mitigate this or prevent it or live and lead and love or meet people where they are in a different way than we currently do. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Sue, when you look back at your, your precious penny, this little boy, and you look back at the life now, what were some moments where you realized this, it is different than it used to be? And maybe I need to start paying more closely atten- attention to this little guy. In, I didn't, I, I honestly had no idea in Dylan's lifetime, at any point in his life, that he was in danger. And that is why I speak about this a lot. And I talk about, especially about youth suicide. Um, You know, there were times in Dylan's life that I look back now, having had the education that I have and having done the reading and talking with the experts, that I can say, That was a potential marker, a sign that something might be wrong. But I didn't have the knowledge at the time. One of those was when Dylan was in his junior year, he got in trouble. There was a little patch of trouble. He, uh, He hacked into the school computer system because he was a technician, a computer technician for the school. He scratched a locker. Uh, he and Eric got arrested for stealing some electronic equipment from a van that was parked on a country road. Those three happened, those three things, all kind of in a cluster in his junior year. And I remember at the time being very puzzled and saying, you know, does this mean something? And I didn't know what it could mean, but I just was very concerned. And Dylan at that time was uh, put into a diversion program, and and he and Eric did very well. In fact, they were released early from the program, which they said almost never happens. So all the signs were pointing to us that he was really okay. Um, When I asked him about it at the time, I said, I'm worried, Dylan. I don't know what this means. His diversion counselor, and I asked her, I said, should he be in counseling? And she asked him, Dylan, do you think you need counseling? And of course, being a teenage boy, he said, no. And, uh, and then he said, I'll prove to you that I'm fine. I don't need any help. And he did. The next 14 months of his life, he continued with school. He had a job. He applied to four colleges, was accepted at all four. I mean, he, he sort of got on track. Um, in the weeks before his death, there, there was another little thing that might have been a sign uh, he did it. Uh, he wrote a paper for school yes. that the English teacher found disturbing. And it, ironically, I never saw the paper. When when she mentioned it to us, she didn't have a copy with her. And um, in this paper, he described a murder. And none of us at that time, because again, Columbine had never happened. None of us knew what to do with this information. I remember. We said to the teacher, is this something we should be concerned about? And she said, I don't know. She said, "Uh, we made a plan. She said, well, I'll ask the school counselor and see what he thinks. And the school counselor talked with Dylan and said, Dylan, you know, you're not allowed to write a paper with bad language in it. And Dylan said, I know. And he said, well, don't do it again. Okay. And Dylan said, okay. So now what what I'm citing is these are things that are potential signs that somebody might be struggling. Change in behavior. That's what occurred in his junior year, was a change in behavior. A, a violent paper might indicate that someone is having violent thoughts. 
His math teacher at that uh, conference reported to us that he was sleeping in class. Changes in sleep patterns can indicate that someone is dealing with depression. I mean, these were little tiny things, but none of us put all these pieces together. Another sign that someone's life may be in danger, that they're considering harm to themselves or someone else, is the purchasing of uh, lethal means. Dylan had purchased, without our knowledge or permission, two guns, two firearms. And one of his friends, two of his friends knew, three of his friends knew that he had done this, but the adults didn't know. Nobody was told. Because, and here's, here's what's so difficult to understand, because Dylan presented as someone who was normal. Yes. And, you know, so there we go back. You know, you can't ask how dumb can the counselor be, how dumb can the parents and the teachers be. You have to understand that Dylan was presenting as a normal person himself. And these little things that might have been perceived as signs today that we might have some clue, for example, being arrested, just the fact that he had been arrested increased his the signs that he might be at a much higher suicide risk. But we didn't know that back then. No, nobody put these pieces together. And, uh, you know, I believe that if he had been targeted, even as, a risk, yes. as someone at risk for suicide and been helped, we could have prevented his involvement in the shooting. So I, I, I read that you, you occasionally keep a journal, and did back then, mm-hmm. and that there was a summer, I believe, that you wrote about how good it is to see Dill thriving, that he's happy, that he's content, that he's engaged. And it was this flattering, beautiful entry, a mother looking down, looking up in some regards at her her developing child, this little boy. And I read that at the same time, to the same day, actually, he was keeping a journal talking about how life was unbearable, that he could barely stand anything anymore. Am I hearing this? Am I reading this right? Yes, you are. And this is such an important point when it comes to mental health, and that is what we think people should be feeling and what they are feeling can be very, very different. People who are struggling, especially someone like Dylan, who really wanted to prove to himself and to the world that he could handle everything. He was a very self-reliant kid. He wanted to do everything for himself. He wanted to you know, teach me to do laundry when he was 10 years old. That someone like this is not likely to share their agony, especially with parents, because they don't want to be a disappointment to their parents. Uh, When he had experienced incidents at school where where he was uh, bullied, he did not share that with us. We did not know that that had occurred. I do remember him coming home one day with ketchup on his shirt, spots of ketchup, and I asked him, what happened? And he said, I've had the worst day of my life, and I don't want to talk about it. So, you know, the, this idea that um, even if you ask, kids may not tell you what they're thinking. Yes. And one of the things I, I like to uh, tell parents is that we need to do whatever we can to try to understand and know what our kids are thinking and feeling. Uh, if I had known that Dylan had written now, it wasn't truly a journal. It was he'd written on pieces of paper that were in a notebook. If I had seen some of those writings, when he talked about, I am in agony, I want to die, I'm cutting myself. To, you know, He's trying to control the pain and the agonizing thoughts. If I had any idea that he was dealing with that, 
I would have been parenting so differently. Yes. So you, you I, I read and really enjoyed your book. It's called A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. And within that book, you wrote, the stubborn belief that we are somehow different, that someone we love would never think of hurting themselves or someone else can cause us to miss what is hidden in plain sight. You'll have to forgive yourself for not asking the right questions. That, that It's a haunting sentence, actually. So, so we don't have to forgive ourselves for not asking the right questions. I'm curious, with all your research, what are the questions? When I talk to my own kids, and they're younger, they still like me, right? They're not, they're not in high school yet. I'm still right. cool in their eyes. Right. I ask, how was school? At best, I might hear fine, right? I mean, like, it's pretty straightforward until we get a little bit of time to just unpack life together. So what are the questions that we parents and we uncles and we coaches and we teachers and counselors and friends ought to be asking one another and we ought to be asking our kids? And I understand that just because you ask, it doesn't mean, number one, that you will get an answer, or number two, that the answer you get will be true or uh, tell the whole story. But... It is important to ask. Um, I asked a psychiatrist once, you know, if you could, what should I tell parents to ask their kids? And he, he, said, uh, he said he would suggest asking an open-ended question such as, tell me something about yourself that no one understands hmm. but that causes you pain. And the key is not so much the question that we ask, but what we do with that question. And when we give our children an opportunity to talk about what they are feeling or what's bothering them, we as parents have a tendency to want to fix it. We cannot tolerate our children being in pain. It's just something we want them to be happy. We put that burden on them to be happy. They, in turn, tell us things that they think will please us. And I think the hardest thing a parent has to do is to listen and not jump to trying to rationalize, trying to fix it, trying to give advice. And he said, no matter what they answer that question, it could be anything at all, and your response should always be, tell me more. Hmm. Tell me more about that. And that's the thing that I regret most deeply, is that even when I was raised as a little girl, you know, I, I would have days where I'd feel ugly and I'd feel stupid and I'd feel unwanted and I'd go to my mom and she'd say well I think you're pretty and I think you're smart and you know and and really what that does it it is a way of saying to that child I'm negating your feelings Hmm. I'm disagreeing with you Um, or you know you're a teenager now you won't always feel that way I remember when I was a kid this happened to me we pull them away from the opportunity to really talk about their feelings and um, and I was guilty of that with my own kids. When they were struggling, I would go to all the same old things. You know, you won't always feel this bad. Well, let's let's do this. Let's let's make an appointment with a counselor. Let's go into the school to talk together. Let's do this. But I never really said, "I'm listening. Tell me more about your feelings." And that's when we have to steal ourselves because one of the things that children, unfortunately, are thinking of, especially in today's world, very often they are so focused on their suffering that they are feeling suicidal. They're having suicidal thoughts. 
And parents should be able to say to their children today, are you, do you feel so bad that sometimes you just wish you were dead? Do you ever think about killing yourself? I mean, these are things, those are tough things to ask your loved one. And we have all kinds of reasons inside where we don't want to ask those things. But I believe the day has come where we've got to learn to ask those kinds of questions. And then, parents, you have the really hard work of don't freak out. Listen. Yes. Um, stay calm. You know, stay focused on your love and your care. And don't try to um, argue with that person and say, oh, that's ridiculous. And you have so much to be thankful for. Or the kinds of things parents do to, in, in good conscience to try to help their children and try to make them feel better. And those are my regrets, that I didn't use better skill at asking questions and listening because I wish I had given him more of an opportunity to just share with me what he was dealing with and to assure him that I would not judge him and that whatever his emotions were, whether they were rage or hatred or fear, that it was okay to have those feelings. Those feelings are okay. And um, if I had anything to do over, I would have tried to uh, make those things happen. Thank you for sharing that and, and giving us not only questions, but the space to allow the awkward uh, answers to simmer and not to fix it right away. Like at least I, I know I'm guilty of, but I would imagine most of our listeners are just trying to always grab the hammer and make it make it better. And I will say, uh, just there are resources. Um, for example, if you have a young person who is struggling, and they do, they have revealed that they are struggling with thoughts of suicide, or you notice that they are doing self-harm, um, you can say to them, "Would you, you know? Let's let's talk to someone, and you can call the National um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline." Or get on a chat with them. And then the number for the lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK, which comes out to 8255. Or you can go to their website and they can chat with someone. And that's a much less threatening way than saying, we're going to haul you off, we're going to find you a therapist, we're going to put you in an emergency room. But just let them talk to somebody who's trained in crisis counseling so they can back that person away from that psychological edge give them ways to feel uh, empowered to help themselves and control their horrible feelings they're having until they can get to some kind of uh, other kind of professional help. So you, you, you talk quite a bit, not so much about emotional and mental health, but brain health. Why do you frame it that way? As a culture, I think we really don't know what mental health is, mental wellness, mental illness. It is this kind of I don't know, it's, it's an oblique concept. And when I was doing research for this book, um, one of the many experts I talked to was Dr. Victoria Arango from Columbia University. And she had done studies on um, of the brains of individuals who had died by suicide. And she found physiological differences in their brains. Uh, one of the things she found was that you know, there was a, uh, an increased production of serotonin, but that the receptors in the frontal lobe weren't working to receive the serotonin. So when we feel 
depressed, overwhelmed, we're having persistent suicidal thoughts, I think it's important to not think of that as a character flaw. You know, you're not, you know, why are you always griping? Why are you always angry? Would you quit feeling sorry for yourself? We tend to judge people who are having these feelings. But in reality, in most cases, I believe, there are physiological reasons why this is happening. Yes. Something is, it's, it's an indication that there's some kind of malfunction or pathology going on. So I try to make people understand that if they are having persistent thoughts of suicide, if they feel that they're in pain, that they can't get their minds to um, shut off, that they can't stop wanting to die and to moving toward making a plan, these are symptoms that there is a malfunction going on. And it's much easier to think about this as a brain malfunction rather than this is some kind of a mental health issue. Well, is it depression? Is it bipolar disorder? It's not important to make that decision at this time. The important thing is to deal with the suicidality in the moment of crisis to get someone away from that crisis. So with the violence that erupts from time to time all too frequently within our schools, I would just imagine every time there's another news report out saying there's been another mass school shooting, not long behind that statement comes the word Columbine. Right. You you can't escape, in some regards, from your son's shadow. That's right. When, when these reports, and it's when, it's not when these things come out, what do you think? What, what, what goes through your mind? Well, we have to put this into some kind of context. Columbine was not the first school shooting. Um, what made Columbine this bellwether that it was, was that at the time that Columbine happened, it was the beginning of 24-7 news coverage. Yes. And there was a constant drumbeat of showing photographs, uh, showing people suffering and running and first responders and interviews and follow-up interviews and, and funerals and, and you know, visiting people in the hospital, whether they wanted to be visited or not. So in that sense, Columbine was the event that sort of belonged to the world and crystallized this school shooting experience for everyone. It, it put them there. But what we have to remember is that Dylan and Eric were copycatting themselves in their writings that, that were found after their deaths and in which I got to see copies of months later. They referred to what they were going to do as NBK, which was their code for natural-born killers. Hmm. They, they were copycatting themselves when they planned that. So, you know, when I see this over and over again, people referring to Columbine, I think it, it was the event that, that all of us, um, it was our first exposure to this. It became kind of the standard for, for what, the, what a school shooting was, what it meant. It took us by surprise. It was, you know, an affluent, all-white community, and, you know, these things aren't supposed to happen here. And... Um, it was a double murder-suicide. I mean, it was statistically all these rare things that sort of came together. But in reality, there have been many, many shootings. And 
the one thing that the FBI, uh, I recently saw an FBI report, but they had said that um, of the mass shootings, 78% of them, the shooter was suicidal yes. first. So this is one of the reasons why I've become so um, focused on suicide prevention, and that is, you know, if we can get someone away from a suicidal crisis, are, uh, it gives us great opportunity to prevent a shooting like this from escalating. Sue, so, you know, I'm, I'm a, a big redemptive guy, and mm-hmm. I, I like the, the, the silver lining. And you and I were talking before we started recording. Even yesterday I was speaking in North Carolina, actually, and a, a little guy came up afterwards. We exchanged some information, including a handshake and a hug. <laughs> and then late last night he sent me an email saying, you know, I— I was suicidal, this little guy said to me, and I was struggling, and now I'm seeking help. And I realize that the light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming train, right. that, that there's reason for hope. Right. As as a community with the 24-hour news cycle and social media beating us over the head with negativity right. and divisiveness, how do you try, and then how can we try, to be light and hope and life and, uh, and space and presence to a community of individuals who are starved for it. So do you you have any ideas that we can follow to say, gosh, John, consider doing this every day? You know, there are several thoughts come to mind. One of them is, from my own perspective, the amount of suffering that I experienced was so painful for so long. You know, it involved years of um, you know, health problems and psychological problems and financial problems. And, and when I got to a place in my life where I no longer felt that I was in pain, hmm. uh, and, you know, you know, for example, I had an anxiety disorder, uh, you know, all these things, when that stopped and I stopped feeling all the horrible feelings that I had felt every minute, I suddenly felt a sense of elation, a sense of almost, you know, ecstasy of it feels so good when the pain stops. And for me, that was kind of a turning point where I developed a deep sense of gratitude for life. Um, it was almost like that, you know, stop hitting yourself on, the, on, your, yes. on your head with a hammer because when you, when you stop, it feels so good. That's the way my life suddenly felt to me. So I practice gratitude a lot. Uh, in fact, if I have a day when I'm very, very stressed and I have things that are on my mind and I'm worried about something, I will go to bed at night always counting blessings and just going through everything that I have to be thankful for to try to adjust my mind into a, to, to a positive place. And when we really think about all the things we have in this country to be thankful for, you can just lull yourself into a peaceful sleep by thinking. I mean, really, think about it. We have hot water when we need it to get clean. We have food. We have shoes on our feet. We have, I mean, any little thing that I find, you know, to focus on is something I'm grateful for. Putting my mind in a place of gratitude is a very comforting place to be. So um, that's, that's one thing that I do. You know, I also practice just a lot of self-care. I mean, I try to, I do yoga and I do, I do art and drawing and I walk in nature and I have friends and family and I, 
I try to do everything I can to stay healthy and balanced. Uh, and I, you know, I try to to do my work serving other people because I believe that helping other people is a gift that we give to ourselves. <laughs> um, so, you know, I practice those things, and um, I think those help. Certainly, those help me. I can't give advice and tell you that everybody should do those things, but they certainly help me. Was there one conversation you had in the hours or days or weeks or months or years after your son's death that you found a particularly healing, whether it was with one of the families of a victim, a family member, a friend, a strange? Was there ever a conversation where it was like, oh, almost like a turning point, having a conversation with this lady, this gentleman, this family? Well, I have met a few of the um, family members of those who were uh, harmed or killed, and those were very, very helpful. But when you said turning point, one conversation did come to mind. And this was in the early days after the shootings, and I had returned to work with so much um, humiliation and (laughs) and self-loathing and, you know, to have my son do what he did and know that some of my colleagues, their children had been in the school, they could have been killed. Yes. And I remember having a conversation with, um, in my cubicle, because we all had cubicles, I worked for the state, and there was no such thing as privacy, everybody could hear everything. And uh, I had said to somebody in my cubicle that, you know, that my son, Dylan could not have loved me if he had done something as awful as he did. And uh, later that afternoon, a lady in in the cubicle next to mine let me know that she'd overheard that conversation, and she told me that she herself was an attempt survivor, Mm. that she uh, at the time had three young children, and she was a single parent, and she said that um, in, in that terrible state of agony that she was in, she had gotten herself to believe that her children would be better off if she were dead and that she was making a plan to end her life. And she said to me, nobody, there's no love stronger than a mother's love for her children. So she said, you've got to understand how strong the suicidal impulse is and has really nothing to do with how much you love somebody or don't love somebody. And... Um, you know, you cannot conclude that Dylan did not love you because of what he did. And I felt that that was the most helpful conversation I had had because there was somebody yes. who had lived experience and could help me forgive myself. And um, mm. it was a wonderful moment for me. So your your book, you, you uh, write in some pretty great detail about forgiving, forgiving your son, forgiving yourself, forgiving life for the, the things that have happened. Where can folks learn more about your book? Well, it's certainly available uh, on Amazon or any, any place any bookseller would have it. Um, so I, I'm not sure how to answer your question, John. Is there, is there a website specifically that you would, you would encourage them to go to, or just nah, anywhere where they grab books they might anywhere enjoy? Anywhere where books are sold, any bookseller will have copies of this book. And yes. it's called A Mother's Reckoning. When you wrote it, when you sat down to begin the process, what were you hoping that we might receive when we read it? When I first started writing, it was in the hours after the shootings, because I was oh. a journaler, and I was somebody who wrote to help myself. So at that time, there were no thoughts about what someone else might get from my writings. It was simply 
it was um, a lifesaver I was tossing to myself because one of the things we do to heal, we can do after a traumatic loss, is writing and journaling. And there is a process of getting all this down on paper, and it gives you the opportunity to kind of unload it, get it out of your heart. And I wrote for years before I even made any steps toward publishing. I mean, I, I was writing for 15 years before I you know, really got to the stage where I, I was thinking of publishing this. And one of my thoughts in publishing this book was, People had told me again and again when they talked to me and they knew my story how it made them parent differently. Um, you know, people who knew me, uh, for example, a lady at work uh, had a young teenage daughter and uh, she said her daughter was acting different somehow and she didn't know how. And she said, you know, if I hadn't known you, I would have let this go. But she said, because I knew you and I knew your story, I started digging to find out if something could be wrong. And she dug and dug and asked and asked, and finally she learned that her young daughter had um, left the house one day when she was told not to and, and had been raped by an oh, individual gosh. on the street. And uh, she was 13. So the mother then got her help, got her medical help. But it's the message of sharing this book became important to me, and I thought I'm, it might have some value for people to hear that... Um, some of these stories. Well, I'm looking at my copy right now, and even even the cover. There's a picture of this beautiful mom, her uh, left hand resting on her knee, holding up her chin, proudly looking down at this blonde-haired, goofy-looking, happy, brilliantly alive little boy. Yeah. And it it reminds me of every picture I have with my wife and our kids. Yes. And for those who see the cover, every picture you have of yourself with your babies, it's every mother's story in some regards. And yet some some unexpected events took place that rocked the story, rocked your world, and uh, it rocked ours, too. So I just I appreciate you putting your heart and mind and uh, life experience into those pages. It has uh, encouraged me to parent differently as well. Oh, thank you. So, Sue, so with every guest that we have ever had on the Live Inspired podcast, we, uh, we wrap up our time with them by asking them seven questions. Okay. So uh, lay up questions for an, a, a lady like you. So number one, what is the best book that you have ever read? Ooh, that's a great question. I wish I had a long time to think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am drawing a blank. I'm thinking of all the books that I love, just good old Stories and tales, mysteries, you know, Gone with the Wind, um, Amy Tan, I liked her books. Um, if I think of, of nonfiction, you know, I think of some of the best books on suicide and yeah. suicide that other people might not have read. Books you probably weren't reading before April 20th, right. 99. Uh, right. There, is, there's one, there are many, many books on suicide, but I think if you have someone who has experienced suicide loss, one of my favorites is a book called No Time to Say Goodbye by mm. Carla Fine. And it's a book I often buy and give to families if they've had a, a, a suicide loss in the family. It was the first book I was actually able to read all the way through, and uh, I found it extremely helpful. Mm. Very good. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103 years of age, leaving you with millions and millions of dollars. Mm. What would you do with that newfound wealth? 
Well, I think I'd sit on it for a while. I don't think there's anything that I would do differently than I'm doing. I mean, I try to live a a life where I have donated whatever I can donate from my book. I'd want to make sure that that money was used well. I'd want to study that for a while and think about it. And I am so happy with the way my life is right now. I can't think of anything I'd do differently. (laughs) Perfect answer. If your house caught fire and all living things, those are your animals and family members and friends, are already out, and you have an opportunity to run into that home and grab one thing. Sue, what would you grab? I think I'd grab pictures of my children, (laughs) family photo albums, as many as I could. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach, or in your case, a mountain range, and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be sitting on that bench with? Dylan. What would you ask him? I think I'd go back to tell me something about yourself Yes. nobody knows. And um, I would just want to listen. I would probably say, I would say I'm sorry that I didn't understand what you were experiencing, mm. and now I'm ready to listen. <laughs> what is the best advice that you have ever received? I think the best advice I've ever received was in my process of therapy, where I was given permission to grieve for my son, yes. I loved and remembered him, and not uh, based his value to me on the, in the way in the la- the way he ended his life. Um, I think allowing myself to grieve for him was the most important thing I could have done for me. And mm-hmm. What would you tell your twenty-year-old self? You're in for a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. Yeah, there's right. <laughs> nothing, nothing you can do is going to prepare you for uh, what you will experience in your life. I think I would tell my 20-year-old self, you are, you are more courageous and stronger than you have any idea. Mm. Indeed. Sue, so the final question I have after our wonderful conversation and now these live inspired seven questions is it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence sue how would you like your one sentence to read boy i wish you'd ask me these questions hey we got on the phone i know that i I gotta get you a hot i don't want you prepping (laughs) i have to really think about this um she did the best she could sue klebold mother and uh, spouse and friend and continuous griever and overcomer and now friend of mine, you have indeed done the best you could and it has inspiring the rest of us to do likewise. I, I just want to thank you for your heart, your story, your grief, your openness in sharing it and encouraging us to listen a little bit more closely than we had in the past. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you today and to meet you. I'm very grateful. My friends, that was Sue Klebold. This is John O'Leary. And today, this day, today is your day. Live inspired.
Sometimes after these interviews, I am still so engaged with these podcast guests that I can't stop asking them questions. And that's what happened this time with Sue Klebold. Sue and I continued the conversation even after the original official recording ended. We talked a little bit more about family, a little bit more about our spiritual journeys, a little bit more about forgiveness. And we talked about the complex issue of mass shootings in America and what she feels can be done about it after researching it and living it for 20 years. Her approach is made clearer with this context. According to the FBI, more than two-thirds of mass shooters are suicidal. Let, let me say this one more time. More than two-thirds of all past mass shooters were suicidal. So it's with that context that I want you to peek into the conversation we had after the original interview. Sue, so we're off now. So I, I you are such a, a gift, and I, I love you, and I love your heart. And I, oh, thank you. my heart breaks when I even think for a moment about what you actually went through and what you go through and what the families went through and what they're dealing with in Florida. And it just it oh. stinks. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a huge complex issue. There are no simple answers. I know we didn't talk about gun control or any of those things, but I have bandwagons myself. But yeah, this is not something that's going to be easily fixed. It's here to stay for a while until we make some changes. So we we didn't talk about it, but now that I have, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm a, a weekend warrior on being an expert. You you are a twenty year old twenty year researcher on it. What what should we do? Well, I, I think there are there are a couple of main areas of focus. Um, I just think, in general, we need a much better system of, of health care, including mental health. And there are a zillion things. I mean, why, when you call 911 with a, with a medical crisis, do they not have anything better than, you know, if you're suicidal, than sending a cop car to your house, putting handcuffs on you, and taking you to an emergency room in a paddy wagon? I mean... They're just, don't get me started, John, because there are, you know, every system that we interact with in our lives, the educational system, the criminal justice system, parenting and families, the family system, um, their health care, emergency rooms, primary care doctors, there are so many things we can all be doing to help people who are lost and desperate. And we've got to do a much better job. And one of the things we have to try to do is to make it difficult for people who are in crisis and in distress to get their hands on um, guns. Mm. And, um, you know, there, there's, it's, there's no easy solution to this. California has a law right now. They're the only state I know where they can, if someone is perceived to be a, a threat to himself or someone else, the police can takes that person's firearms and hold them for a designated period of time. But that is just scratching the surface. Yes. We've got to have better ways because it's certainly in Colorado, I think it's like 76, 80 percent of deaths by firearms are suicides. And, and just owning a gun increases someone's risk. And, you know, this is me just talking your ear off. But, I mean, there are many, many things that must be done. And... Um, it's not a simple problem. It's very complex, and it has to be dealt with on all levels, including the stigma that prevents people from asking for help. And yes. Help. Well, part of the pushback against, uh, against that stigma is your voice. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> it's so. true, and 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 now it's people hearing that voice and then sharing that voice. So uh, I, I again want to thank you. Thank you. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Live Inspired podcast with our newest friend, Sue Klebold. The way she shared her heart and her story, her grief, her struggle, and the life she had, how it changed, and what she's doing with it today certainly inspired me to ask different questions through a different lens, hopefully creating more space for my spouse, for my four babies, for my parents, for my siblings, my friends, and our community to be honest about where they are and how I can love them where they are to remind them that they're not alone. When I I, I think of Sue's story and when I prepared for it, I thought it would be a conversation heavily around the issues of the day, whether that's mental health, gun rights, school systems. But instead, I think it ultimately was, as you heard, a story about a mom, a mother trying to figure out what happened, what went wrong, what could have gone completely differently, and what we, my friends, can do differently in our lives to ensure different outcomes in our journeys going forward. The shocking thing for me was to realize how ordinary her family seemed, how radically quickly it all changed, and the reality. It could happen to any of us. It could happen to any one of us. I hope in hearing it that it will create a little bit more space for you to be more bold, more open, more faithful, more compassionate, to become better listeners, but also, and maybe most importantly, to be even more empathetic to those around us, to those who seem on top of the world or way down and living right now on the bottom of it, to our family members, to the person staring back in the mirror at you right now. My friends, listen up. I love you. I'm grateful that you are part of our Live Inspire community. You are not on your own. Sue shared a key resource. Whether you are someone, whether it's you or someone you love in a suicidal crisis right now, remember that you can connect with a trained crisis counselor right now, 24-7, by calling this number. Ready? Please write it down. 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK. Or live chat at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Again, one more time. It's www.suicidepreventionlifeline, all one word, .org. You know, you may not know this, but there have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of downloads for our Live Inspired podcast. These downloads have been pulled down from all 50 states, from several dozen countries. We're thrilled that you're one of them. I don't know where you are tuning in today, but I'm thrilled that you are part of our community. And I'm here to tell you loud and clear as you get back into your day that the best is yet to come. This is good news. It is worth celebrating. It is worth fighting for and living for boldly. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live Inspired.